You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin with breaking details involving a shooting at a gun range in Langley. It involves a member of the Surrey Police Service. Kamal Kuramali is live with more on what we're learning about this incident and the officer involved. Kamal. Chris, we just finished speaking to the Surrey Police Service who have confirmed that an off-duty police officer has died uh, from a self-inflicted wound at a shooting range in Langley. Uh, details are still limited, but uh, obviously uh, a very tragic death uh, of one of their members, uh, a male uh, who had been serving uh, as an SPS member since last year and worked with the RCMP for years before that. Langley RCMP say just after noon, they responded to reports of a distraught man at the shooting range. The Independent Investigations Office says it is now investigating. The incident looks to have happened inside the shooting range, simply known as The Range and touted as Canada's largest indoor shooting range. The facility was closed for hours and will remain closed for the rest of the evening. The identity of the officer who shot himself has not been released, but the SPS says next of kin have been notified and officers were at the family's home up until this past hour. Uh, once again, just finished speaking to SPS, who have now confirmed that the police officer who died was suspended with pay stemming from an incident related to allegations of breach of trust from August of last year. My understanding was that uh, this officer uh, was suspended with pay and was subject to that investigation. It was a breach of trust investigation that was being fronted by Surrey RCMP and was working its way through BC Prosecution Services. This is very much in its early stages, but uh, another thing SPS said was that the investigation is going to be a complicated one given that this uh, officer was off duty. It's an SPS officer in Langley where RCMP uh, hold jurisdiction as well as IIO is now investigating and BC RCMP, not just Langley, are also involved now. So uh, just given the number of jurisdictions and that this officer was off duty, going to be a complicated investigation moving forward. Back over to you guys. Tragic for the officer's family and for both law enforcement agencies too. Thanks very much, mm -hmm. Kamal. Well, sexual misconduct allegations about the behavior of a man connected to the new Westminster recovery community. A number of women have come forward to say the man preyed on them and the new Westminster police have confirmed they have opened an investigation. As the Madagahi reports, the women say this happened at the most vulnerable time of their lives. When I relapsed, he reached out to me and said that he was going to help me and, like, um, give me some groceries. He took me to a bar and, like, got me drunk. And then, um, yeah, I just, like, went downhill kind of from there. She fears being shunned for sharing this story. And because it involves sexual misconduct allegations, we've concealed her identity. I kind of had already known that he was doing some of the stuff he was doing, but I think my judgment just wasn't there because I was re like using drugs. She is just one alleged victim among dozens coming forward with serious sexual misconduct allegations against a former contract employee at a new Westminster alcohol and drug treatment center. Because he held such a good standing with the people that run the last door organization, I think that that 
just made him feel like he was untouchable. The new Westminster police confirmed they are investigating. In a private Facebook group with almost 800 members, there are multiple accounts of similar allegations. I was at my lowest. He gave me unwanted romantic gifts and grabbed me inappropriately. In another post, a member says, I was fresh in recovery. He started on me and I relapsed. And he paid me to have sex because I needed drugs. The accused was not a counselor, but a contractor at Lastor Recovery Center. Those posting allegations are former clients at Westminster House Society. These women say they met him at group co-ed settings that clients from both recovery centers attended. This was going on for well over a decade. Both recovery centers refusing on-camera interviews. In a statement, Lastor Society says it took immediate action and severed ties with the individual when it learned of misconduct allegations. But Westminster House says allegations have never been reported to its leadership and it has never had any complaints of misconduct from women in its care, a claim disputed by alleged victims. I'm furious because that's just not true. Absolutely not true. I myself have come out, my friends have gone to staff there. Global News is not naming the man accused because he has not been charged. Complainants want him to turn himself into police and for both recovery centers to take accountability. I did feel exploited. Like, um, I was in a place that I thought was going to keep me safe, and it didn't. We felt it was an appropriate time to remind everyone... This as New West Police post a timely call to action for potential victims to come forward. Imadagahi, Global News. On Monday, we told you about a damning report into how allegations of RCMP harassing indigenous girls in Prince George were allegedly swept under the carpet. Now the whistleblower, who says her complaints were ignored, is coming forward to Global News. As Catherine Urquhart reports, the retired Mountie says she is frustrated the force has not improved. Uh, most precious thing that I have, actually, is this picture. Lisa McKenzie spent nearly 20 years as an RCMP officer. If it was a career that I enjoyed immensely and um, was emotionally devastating, then I no longer work for them anymore. There were also some troubling times, and this whistleblower is speaking out following global story about a shocking report by the RCMP's Civilian Review and Complaints Commission. It's hard. In 2006, Mackenzie says she reported finding videotapes in her basement, which she once shared with her ex, also a Mountie. The tapes allegedly showed Indigenous girls being harassed by RCMP officers in Prince George. She says the behavior was extremely inappropriate. It appeared to be in a personal vehicle, and um, he didn't appear to be in uniform. I could hear the voice of another male in the truck. I couldn't identify who that male was and was talking to another um, young Indigenous female outside of the vehicle and um, appeared to be encouraging her to flash them. The 49-year-old claims superiors ordered her to stay silent. I had um, told him of the tapes and what I had found and he um, told me to hide them and to tell nobody, which is what I did. 
Within days, the tapes were taken during an alleged break-in by her Mountie ex. He denied wrongdoing and was never charged. Later, Staff Sergeant Gary Kerr says he also told superiors about the tapes and break-in. Still, nothing was done, prompting him to alert the RCMP's Civilian Review and Complaints Commission. It's simply stunning. It's, it's unbelievable. The RCMP did nothing from when I made the first phone call in 2011. Uh, there was never any investigation. The commission's report determined no one in a position of authority in E-Division reasonably ensured a timely assessment of criminal misconduct or code of conduct breaches, and no one ensured a reasonable investigation was conducted. RCMP headquarters in Ottawa has not responded to questions. Lisa McKenzie says she hopes for change within the organization, where she worked for almost two decades. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A Surrey man is flying across the country for what he believes is the best treatment for his prostate cancer, which isn't available here in B.C. After years spent advocating for the treatment and navigating the system, Dan McMurdo has decided to spend thousands of dollars to go to Ottawa and pay for tests and treatments he says he needs now. Julie Nolan reports. Dan McMurdo was heading toward a retirement in 2017 filled with all kinds of projects. But then he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Just like he does with anything he tackles, he did meticulous research into treatment options and what he found out was surprising. I met with uh, my urologist and um, he basically told me two um, scenarios. I either um, get full radiation or get the prostate removed. It was like a silver bullet to your head and totally shocking. Shocking to him because these two options come with added risks like urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction. Needless to say, I have to do something and I don't feel full radiation and removal are the answers. Frustrated by the lack of alternatives for his stage two cancer, he found experimental treatments in Ontario, such as high intensity focal ultrasound or HIFU. However, BC's medical services plan refused to pay except for surgery. It's the cheapest route for them because they don't have the money. Out of province expenses have now racked up for McMurdo, 3,200 for a PET scan, 7,000 for radiation therapy, more than $400 for a DNA test, plus the high food treatment for 25,000, a total of $35,630. With cancer, it doesn't, you can't wait on it. You have to act on it and you got to find out from the MRI and then from the biopsy. One of BC's leading urologists spoke with Global News, although not McMurdo's doctor. Larry Goldenberg agrees wait times for biopsies for all cancers in the province are way too long, but alternative prostate cancer treatments should not be the preferred course of action. There isn't strong data that it's really any better from a cancer cure point of view from the standard radiation therapy. BC's health minister says researchers are always looking at the best ways to treat cancer patients and will carefully fund treatments founded in science. That doesn't mean uh, that everything that's available in the world is always available here. They, our clinical leads make those decisions. Still, McMurdo believes prostate cancer patients are not treated well in BC as the cancer cells return and his quality of life just isn't there. I want to forget about this whole thing. It's like a bad dream. Julie Nolan, Global News.
All right, Keith Baldry joins us now with more on health care in this province and BC's reaction to the funding announcement mm. from Ottawa yesterday. Keith, what are we hearing? Yeah, you know, the funding offer from Ottawa fell far short of what the premiers have been looking for, looking for $28 billion in just one year alone. Uh, so no, $200 billion of uh, over 10 years, most of that already committed money. We caught up to the Health Minister, Adrian Dix, today, and he's decided to put a positive light on this because basically BC is going to get $600 million a year, $6 billion over 10 years. That's a huge amount of money, even in an expensive health care system. And he says at the very least, it shows the federal government is going to stop deteriorating its or decrease its share of uh, health care, even though it's not increasing it very much. Here's the health minister. The positive news is that the federal government has recognized that their share cannot continue to deteriorate. That's good news. And that um, that's been stabilized. The good news is we know right now what they're offering for 10 years. We expect, and Premier Eby and the other premiers I know are meeting together, and we'll see that as more. And then we'll do the work. So $600 million, $600 million a year is going to be BC's share. What does that buy you in health care? That would fund or run BC's health care system for about 9 or 10 days. That's how much money we spend on health care, almost $26 billion a year. It goes up $800 million a year or so. Now with that federal money, is $600 million. That does give the provincial government a bit of a cushion when it comes to health care funding, but nowhere near what they're looking for, which is why there's going to be further talks between the premiers and potentially with the prime minister. I'm sure there will be. All right. Thanks for that, Keith. The city of North Vancouver is now offering a one-time grant to help out residents after two devastating fires last December. The grant will provide up to $360,000 to residents who are still without a home. More than 150 people have been found or have been able to find permanent housing, but 72 are still displaced. The city says there's a huge need for support as fire victims deal with challenges like record low vacancy rates and an increased cost of living as they try to get back on their feet. Now, really, the crisis is from, from the fire to now the crisis of not having affordable housing available or, you know, even housing available um, with a very low vacancy rate to be able to absorb that many people at one moment in time. All eligible residents can apply for the grant through the Hollyburn Community Services Society. Residents in a Langley neighborhood are demanding action over the condition of a now vacant multi-million dollar property. The home has been vacant for about six months and since then it has become a magnet for squatters and people dumping trash and even construction waste. Paul Johnson reports. One man's eyesore is another man's investment property. Such are the possible outcomes in the Lower Mainland's seemingly endless property boom. I think it's a mess. That's one word to describe the large and nicely treed parcel in the Fern Ridge neighborhood of the township of Langley. Neighbors tell us they think the last known occupants moved out about a year ago. Since then, they say the property's been a magnet for the police, abandoned cars, and has become some kind of improvised dump. It's actually interesting to look at garbage. It gives you some clues into the thinking behind how it ended up here. We've got old tires, construction waste, what's left of some old Christmas display. Basically, a lot of stuff that might cost you a few bucks if you actually took it to the landfill. This side we have beautiful, you know, nature trees and... Uh gorgeous lake and water and uh and then the other side is eh, 
Passersby say the dump site is uniquely situated to spoil their nature walk moments. It's right next to a pond and popular trail network. While the scofflaws who've been chucking their refuse here are unknown, property records show the owner lives nearby in this house. He wasn't home when we went to ask him about the mess and why he hasn't been able to clean up and secure the property, given that he was able to come up with the more than $7 million to buy it. Yeah, they should clean it up and then uh, put it on the taxes. That's all there is to it. Somebody owns it. Calls for action from City Hall appeared to be gathering momentum Wednesday, with the township of Langley telling us they're investigating and the owner will be hearing from their bylaw department. In Langley, Paul Johnson, Global News. A notorious child predator in trouble with the law again. Why Randall Hopley was back in court 12 years after abducting a child in Sparwood. The crackdown is coming. Why Netflix isn't chill about password sharing anymore. And it's planned to charge you for it. Also, a dash cam picks up something bizarre on a passing dump truck. Did you catch it? We'll show you what it was a little later. Right now, though, the convicted sex offender who abducted a boy in Sparwood 12 years ago is free tonight, despite a parole board recommending charges against him. Randall Hopley has not been complying with supervision orders. As Romina Dea reports, it comes after an incident at a Vancouver library last fall. After nearly three months in prison, Randall Hopley is a free man for now. Provincial Court Judge Jennifer Olton releasing the convicted sex offender on strict conditions to stay away from children and computers. Last month, Hopley, now 57, was charged with two counts of failing to comply with an LTSO, long-term supervision order, for being in the presence of children under 16 and using a computer. According to the evidence, back in November, an officer followed Hopley to a Vancouver library where he was allegedly found at a computer station about three feet away from young children who were engaged in story time. Hopley was arrested, but later denied he was at the library, on the internet, or near children. His room was searched, and allegedly sexual toys and undergarments were found. According to the evidence, Hopley said it was from masturbation. Hopley made national headlines in 2011 after the abduction of three-year-old Keenan Hebert. In the middle of the night, Hopley snuck into the child's home in Sparwood and took the boy. Hopley kept Keenan in an abandoned cabin for four days before suddenly returning the child physically unharmed. So to the person that returned Keenan safely to our family, I would like to say thank you. It was the right thing to do. Hopley pleaded guilty to abduction and other offenses. He was sentenced to seven years. In November 2018, Vancouver police issued an urgent warning about Hopley, saying he posed a significant risk to harm young boys. In the charges currently before the court, Crown Counsel Catherine Ford said a LTSO breach is serious and the court had already determined Hopley is a danger to the public. But the judge ruled the risk assessment was dated and she was not satisfied Hopley currently poses a risk to the public, so he was released. The matter is back in court February 21st. Romina Dea, Global News. 
Four months after a transit bus driver was fatally pinned between two buses, his grieving family delivered their victim impact statements in court. Last September 27th, 64-year-old Charanjit Parhar, a 20-year veteran driver, was adjusting the trolley wires on the back of one parked bus when another bus drove into him. In December, the driver of that second bus, Mandeep Karasadu, pleaded guilty to driving without due care and attention under the Motor Vehicle Act, and today she apologized to Parhar's family. Sadhu is still employed by Coast Mountain Bus Company, but has been on leave since the incident. The judge is reserving his decision on sentencing. A date has not yet been set. Up ahead, big changes to the Granville Bridge. It's uh, one of the bigger transportation projects that we've done in quite a while. What to expect as the transformation to a more bike and pedestrian friendly crossing begins. Also, Consumer Matters is on pothole patrol. What to do if your vehicle is damaged by one. Good evening. Crews have just arrived on scene to a three-car crash here in Burnaby, eastbound on Highway 1, just a little bit east of Kensington. Two lanes are currently blocked. Today's Lotto 649 Gold Ball jackpot is $26 million, plus the classic $5 million jackpot, two jackpots in every draw. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 1 in Burnaby. It is pothole season, and those road hazards can take a toll on your tires and your wallet. Consumer Matters reporter Andrew is here now with more on who's responsible for the cost of pothole damage. Many drivers wondering this, Anne. Okay, thanks for that, Sophie. Well, if you drive over a pothole on a city street, rural road, or a BC highway, and your vehicle is damaged, you could be paying out of pocket for repairs if you don't have the right insurance coverage. As we all know, sometimes the impact is unavoidable, but depending where it happened, ICBC recommends drivers notify the municipality or province of the pothole problem right away and provide the exact location. If there is damage, pothole claims fall under a driver's optional collision coverage. ICBC also suggests drivers take photos of the pothole and the damage it caused. A municipality or other jurisdiction may be responsible for vehicle damage, but only under certain circumstances. I know it's extremely rare. Um, negligence has to be proven. It has to be proven that the jurisdiction was notified of, of a pothole and did not take action to repair or temporarily fix the pothole or alert drivers that the hazard exists. Now, if negligence is proven against the party responsible for road maintenance, ICBC may be able to recover the cost of the claim, and if so, it would not impact a driver's premium. Meanwhile, the Ministry of Transportation tells us if drivers wish to make a claim, they can at the following email address, bchighwaysclaims at gov.bc.ca. Claims are then forwarded to the maintenance contractor who is responsible for reviewing and evaluating them based on their maintenance records to determine acceptance or denial of liability. The ministry says it's not directly involved in this initial assessment process, nor do they advise on the outcome of claims. Now, if maintenance records show the contractor had not addressed a pothole within time frames set out in their maintenance agreement, drivers who incurred vehicle damage from that incident may be entitled to a claim. Also, 
denied claims by the maintenance contractor can be appealed by submitting a request to the ministry who will then review the contractor's decision and respond directly to the claimant. You can send an appeal request to BC Highways Claims at gov.bc.ca. And if you have a consumer issue for me, there's my email address. Email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Sounds good. Thanks very much, Ann. A major upgrade is finally set to begin on the Granville Bridge. That span originally part of a planned freeway that never ended up being built. Now, nearly 70 years later, the redesign will give more room to pedestrians and cyclists. Aaron MacArthur reports. Loud, narrow, and dangerous. Granville Street Bridge was built in the 1950s for a highway network that never materialized. Four vehicle lanes in each direction with no consideration given to pedestrian traffic or people on bikes. Starting this week, the bridge is getting a significant alteration. When we first started looking at this coming out of our 1997 transportation plan, it had long been recognized that there was a big issue here that we needed to solve. Work will begin really on two projects at the same time. First, the city and TransLink will spend $19 million to open up two vehicle lanes to accommodate other users. Concrete barriers will separate people from cars. Downtown, another $31 million will come out of the city's property endowment fund to dismantle the two loops to get on and off the bridge. The idea is this frees that up for development, so portions of that uh, could be, uh, would be marketed to a developer and that cost would be recouped. Work on the East Loop will begin immediately, the West Loop later this spring. The biggest inconvenience will be the closure of Granville Street from the Seymour Howe off-ramps north to Drake through the summer and fall of 2023. Two lanes in each direction will remain open at all times during construction, which should be more than enough to handle the estimated 65,000 vehicles that use the bridge every day. There will be some additional delays, but we're not expecting major, major um, uh, congestion from that. The work being done is only the first phase of this project. In the future, the west sidewalk will be widened and a more permanent barrier installed. Another possible future addition could be easier access to Granville Island. A proposed elevator from the bridge deck was discussed, but needs further funding to proceed. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Just ahead, the unfolding humanitarian crisis in Turkey and Syria. Earthquake victims need more of everything, and we'll show you how you can help. Plus... The injured veteran watching a dream come true, helping others heal. Good evening. Traffic is still in recovery mode over here on the Vancouver side of the Knight Street Bridge. Just cleared a car with a flat tire southbound at the south end. Today's Lotto 649 Gold Ball jackpot is $26 million plus the classic $5 million jackpot. Two jackpots on every draw. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Knight Street Bridge. Well, some video to show you now of a bizarre and potentially dangerous incident that happened in Maple Ridge on Friday. You have to look closely. That's right. This is dash cam video showing a dump truck with a pup trailer speeding through a red light with a person standing on the running board clinging to the driver's side door. It happened at the intersection of Haney Bypass and Highway 7. A witness says the dump truck had apparently cut off a car. The driver of that car got out 
jumped on the side of the truck and started yelling when the dump truck took off. Ridge Meadows RCMP confirmed they are investigating. Well, the rescue efforts in Turkey and Syria continue as teams in both countries look for survivors following Monday's earthquake. Humanitarian groups are renewing calls for help as many regions struggle to get supplies. Kyle Benning has the latest. Five-year-old Yasmin was gripping the railing as Turkish fire crews pulled her out of a building stairwell in one of the hardest-hit regions. While many celebrate children and families escaping the rubble, others like the Abu Jalhum family are mourning. Wadid Abu Jalhum says she hasn't seen her son or his children for 12 years after they moved for a better life in Turkey. The last time they spoke was before Monday's 7.8 magnitude earthquake and calls from the family to her son Karim's phone went unanswered. Karim, his wife and four children are among the 70 people from the West Bank who the Palestinian Foreign Ministry says died in the natural disaster. According to Turkish and Syrian agencies, the death toll is approaching 12,000 people and climbing with tens of thousands more injured and even more looking for shelter. We, are, we need more in terms of food and medical and we're getting some now through WHO, but we will definitely need more. We need more people to support the teams that are working in there. The United Nations says getting aid to parts of Syria has been tough between infrastructure issues and the ongoing civil war. Search teams from at least a dozen countries have been sent to the region, including this Greek disaster response unit. Its team leader says they are ready to assist as much as they can with living victims that remain trapped. But as search and rescue resources do their work, the World Health Organization is also concerned about whether survivors are having their basic needs met. We are in real danger of seeing a secondary disaster which may um, cause harm to more people than the initial disaster if we don't move with the same pace and intensity as we are doing on the search and rescue side. On top of everything, the below freezing temperatures have added another layer of complexity to search efforts, a hurdle when it comes to the speed of rescue efforts. Kyle Benning, Global News. And in a tweet late Canada's today, Minister of International Canada's Minister of International Development says the Canadian Disaster Assessment Team is currently en route to Turkey. Harjit Sajjan says the team will be assessing what tools Canada can use to best respond to the devastation. Now, if you are wondering how you can help, you can donate to the Humanitarian Coalition. It brings together verified organizations, including Oxfam Canada, their website, together.ca, or you can call 1-855-461-2154. In Health Matters tonight, a University of Calgary study has discovered a link between the pandemic and a rise in alcohol-related liver disease. It started with an observation during the early days of COVID that lineups to get into liquor stores were longer than the lines for grocery stores. That led researchers to dig a little deeper, and what they found was alarming. Hospitalization rates for patients with alcohol hepatitis more than doubled from 2020 to 2021. Another concern, the average age of the patients dropped from 48 to 44, and they fear these habits won't disappear overnight. We suspected that the habits around alcohol consumption that people may have built during the pandemic may have relaxed a little bit or their habits may have changed in the second year. And unfortunately, based on these numbers, we don't actually suspect that now. Now researchers say the attention should be on solutions. 
such as promoting less alcohol consumption, early treatment, and focusing on addiction. Still to come, the work of an iron soldier. It's beyond expectation that something like this could have come together. The inspiration behind a brand new facility to help veterans and first responders heal. And King James secures his crown, how he became the greatest scorer in NBA history, coming up in sports. One decent day, which uh, is <laughs> better than no decent days. We'll take it, right? We'll take it. We have to. Yeah, I mean, it's January after all, and that time, or no, sorry, it's February. <laughs> it's February 8th, Christy. Thank you. I'm, I'm definitely on it. What I meant more so was that it is winter after all, mm -hmm. and sometimes that can happen where we just get patterns of non-salt systems. So, yes, a nice little break today, but we've got another one on deck that's already producing warnings. It includes uh, the North Coast inland sections of snowfall warning 25 centimeters of snow expected as that pushes through overnight and into the early parts of the morning hours tomorrow. Uh, areas in purple under a wind warning with southeast gusts potentially up to 110 kilometers an hour. This is an atmospheric river, but the main target is really the north and central coast. It's an AR Category 2 targeting those regions. Now, we are just on the bottom edge of it. We will be impacted by the warm front as it cruises across the region. So a chance of showers overnight through the morning hours for our region. But then it continues to slide further north. And we'll actually catch breaks of blue sky tomorrow afternoon. And it will be very mild because we're in that warm sector of the atmospheric river. So 10 degrees as our high. But by Thursday night, we're back into periods of rain as the cold front swings across. So we're not going to be immune from the system, but definitely those of you across the North Coast will get hit. So periods of heavy rain for you over the next 24 hours. Nice breaks of blue sky for the interior regions, but the west coast of Vancouver Island will be impacted with periods of rain. For our region, just a chance of showers in the morning, breaks of blue sky in the afternoon, but we will see rain by Thursday evening and then overnight into Friday. We're getting behind it. We'll see some breaks of blue sky, but we still have a chance of showers. And yes, there's your sort of winter-like forecast or uh, February, I guess you could say. Now, here's a look at tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from Soyuz. Trevor Reeves sharing this with us. A beautiful moonlit lake there. Thank you so much, Trevor, for that one. Great. Back to you, too. That's beautiful. Thank you, Christy. Like glass. All right. If you are sharing a Netflix password with friends and family, chances are you'll be getting a notification soon if you haven't already. The streaming service says it will begin emailing Canadian users today about limitations on who can access their account outside of their household. Under the new rules, premium and standard account holders will be given the option to add extra members for $7.99 per month. The company says more than 100 million households share accounts. Netflix Canada did not say when it would begin enforcing the new rules. I'm not going to say one way or another. I'm just going to wait for the notification. <laughs> we'll see. Is uh, the news hour on Netflix? Uh, no, we are uh, on Slack and Prime. Prime. Okay. And what's well, Stack do? TV? Stack TV. If we're not, if we're on, if we're not on Netflix, then what's the point? We're on yeah, Roku. Exactly. I'm getting it. We're on everything but Netflix. Roku. You can do. You so can... don't even worry about Netflix. All right. Then. There's no excuse to miss what you're about to say right now. Exactly. So I'm going to talk about the Canucks. The Whitecaps won an exhibition game today. We'll go back to uh, L.A. last night and hear from LeBron, who, of course, is a new all-time leading scorer in NBA history.
did it in dramatic fashion. All right, thanks, Squire. Also coming up, a home for heroes, the new Legion Veterans Village, and why this is such a special place, thanks to that man right there. Squire, take it away. Okay, so the Vancouver Canucks gave the uh, Devils a pretty good run on Monday night, came back from that 4-1 deficit, did lose in overtime. Tonight, they take on the Rangers, who, like the Devils, have been playing pretty well of late as late two. Pretty well of late two. And the Rangers are one of the best defensive teams in the league. Anyway, New York needs wins. They are uh, fighting for one of the top three spots in the Metropolitan Division. The Canucks, of course, are in the midst of learning Rick Tockett's way of doing things. Uh, some players are pretty much auditioning for jobs next season. And because of that, the players and the coach, they don't have visions of Connor Bedard dancing in their heads. It's another one of those nights where some Canuck fans are secretly cheering for the other team. Let's go to the Gotham. Madison Square Gardens tonight. Spencer Martin will start in goal, of course, tomorrow night. The Canucks take on Bo Horvat and the Islanders. They'll go with Dealey in that game. It's Vincent Trocek. Chris Kreider, that was too easy. one nothing for the Broadway Blue Shirts. One of the best uniforms in hockey. All the original six teams have great uniforms. And they weren't made with marketing people. They were just made way back in the day. That's a Philip Heedle, not very good defense in front of the net by the Canucks. It's 2 nothing. But Vancouver does get a nice goal here, and it's all really Quinn Hughes. Quinn Hughes has the puck, just keeps going. The Rangers get magnetized to him, and they forget about Connor Garwin, and he makes a nice shot and beats Igor Shosturkin to make it 2-1. Okay, so that's the way it was after 20 minutes. Second period action, and you know who's played pretty well since he got called up? Vasily Podkols, and I thought he was decent against the Devils. Has a chance here. Shosturkin makes the save, but he'll get his revenge before the second period is out. This is a goal that had a lot of strange bounces, and then Alexis Lafreniere gets an easy one, just sort of pokes it in. It was probably already going in anyway. He gets his uh, eighth of the year. That made it 3-1. The aforementioned Pod Colson does something for Tockett. I'm sure Rick Tockett's impressed. Artemi Panarin tries to block this shot. Instead, said it creates a knuckleball here. Nice pass from Miller, and Pod Colson gets a goal. Well done. So 3-2 is the score, and they are through 40 minutes at Madison Square. All right, down in Indio, California, Whitecaps still without a sponsor on their shirts against Toronto FC. This is exhibition action. Ryan Gold with a chance. Nice little pass from Brian White. No. Then a penalty kick for TFC is stopped by Isaac Bomer. Now a penalty kick for the Whitecaps. Christian Dahomey. He does not get stopped. So that was in the uh, 66 minutes, 1-0 for Vancouver. Free kick now, Luis Martins. This hits the post, and it goes right to Javane Brown, who heads it in for a 2-0 lead for Vancouver. And then Dahomey gets the brace on the breakaway. Just be calm, slotted in the net. That's the way to do it. 3-0 under the palm trees in the Coachella Valley. Not too far away, of course, is Los Angeles. And last night in L.A., LeBron James became the NBA's all-time leading scorer. He set the record before the end of the third quarter against Oklahoma City. 
And he did it in front of family and friends and also did it in front of the man whose record he broke, the guy who's standing beside him in this picture, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And the best thing is, the points that set the milestone didn't come on a free throw, didn't come on a putback. That would have been boring. He did it his way with a fadeaway jumper. But there are a lot of people who hope LeBron, as an homage, or homage, I should say, to Kareem, would score like Abdul-Jabbar did in his day. A lot of people wanted me to go to the sky hook to break the record or, or one of my signature dunks. Uh, but my fader was a signature play as well, and uh, I was able to get it and, and, um, and touch nothing but the bottom of the net. Uh, that, was, uh, that was pretty cool. Alexander Bublik having a bad day. But his rackets are having a worse day. <laughs> this is in France. He's actually the defending champion in this event, but he got knocked out today shortly after this happened. Well, I know. Oh. And he's not like, what did that one do to you? His sponsor's not going to like it. And what did this oh. one do to you? Nothing. Oh, no. I know. The good people at Yonix might want to talk to him. He's, okay, he's saving one. <laughs> well, he had the, he had the play a little longer, so he had to, had to save one. But, yeah, the other three took a ferocious beating. I should have actually given, like, a warning before that. Yeah, Goodness. that was disturbing. Content. Any, any wow. tennis rackets watching in the audience would have been disturbed. Yeah, apologies. Thank you, sir. Up next, a Canadian veteran turning trauma into hope at a new home for those who served. Jordan Armstrong standing by now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan. Chris, lots of questions, lots of investigations regarding the death by suicide of a Surrey Police Service officer. As you heard earlier, this particular officer had been off duty and suspended with pay amid a breach of trust investigation from last summer. He died at a shooting range in Langley just after noon today. We're trying to get a better sense of the circumstances here, and Kamal Karamali will have the very latest at 11. Plus, another BC city reporting a big spike in Catalytic converter thefts. The story tonight. Chris? All right, thanks very much, Jordan. Well, BC is home to a new sanctuary for soldiers and other first responders dealing with physical and psychological wounds. Not only does it help them heal, it'll become home with close to 100 social housing units, all of it inspired by a wounded veteran who keeps exceeding expectations. Kristen Robinson reports. The opening of Legion Veterans Village in Surrey yet another accomplishment for Trevor Green. Could you ever imagine having this building? No, no way. This is unreal. The Army Reserve captain who suffered a brain injury in an axe attack during a tour of duty in Afghanistan is the inspiration behind this $312 million social infrastructure project. A new Wally Legion, a center for veteran and first responder health, and 91 affordable housing units plus market housing. There's always been uh, a certain spirit of can-do spirit that I recognize from the Army. No one thought Green would survive the 2006 attack, but he defied the odds, taking his first steps in 2015 as part of Project Iron Soldier. With the help of an exoskeleton or a wearable robot that moves his hips and knees, he retrained his brain to learn to walk again. Although he lives in Nanaimo, 
Green will continue his rehab at Legion Veterans Village, a vision eight years in the making. When we went to the first responder community and the veteran community, we asked them, where are the problem areas? Where are the pinch points? Where are the gaps? And they shared that very openly and emotionally. And it's fully self-balanced. The result, a first-of-its-kind center of clinical excellence, operated by Veterans and First Responders Health, an integrated group of wellness and rehab service providers, people like Green can access health care and PTSD and mental health counseling under one roof. Uh, having all services in one place, with, uh, especially with the residences, because we're comfortable around others who have gone through what we've gone through. This was our first, and now we've proven it can be done. So we have made the impossible possible. First of its kind in the country, and hopefully there's more across the country. And around the world. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Just like LeBron. That is pretty mm -hmm. cool, exactly. Uh, all right, let's do one last check of weather before we wrap it up. Okay, sounds good. So uh, we do have a chance of showers tomorrow morning, but I'm expecting breaks of blue sky through the afternoon with a high of 10 degrees. It is going to be a beautiful afternoon before the rain and wind move back in. By late evening, it will be a stormy Thursday night. Used to that winter weather. All right, I am so glad producer Marcia Gabriel didn't <laughs> forget how to do this. She's been gone five weeks. Yes. Welcome back, Marcia. Welcome back from your <laughs> vacation. Welcome back, Marcia. Have a good night, all. Good night, everyone.